Hi, I'm Nate Flax. I'm Noah Longworth McGuire. And, and this, this is, is Talking, Talking Lion. Lion. Talking Lion is an artist-to-artist interview podcast where we talk to our friends about life, music, and everything in between. Most of the time, we're artists ourselves, a duo called Sleeping Lion. But we started this podcast to dive deeper into what it means to be an artist and creative. If you're a fan of us, our podcast, or our community, feel free to join our Discord at sleepinglionmusic.com slash discord. Now on with the show. We recorded this episode with our best friend and podcast editor, Souvenir. We met Souvenir years ago in a show that we both played in an empty pool. But during the pandemic, we all became incredibly close after Souvenir became the dungeon master of our virtual Dungeons & Dragons campaign. He built a world around us that we've been enjoying together for almost two years. He's also been editing all the episodes of this season of Talking Lion, including this one. We recorded this as he was putting the finishing touches on his recently released EP, Sleep Study, on which we recorded some gang vocals on multiple songs. He and I also have a secret side project called Tahunga Sushi Night. Souvenir is our best friend, genuinely one of our favorite artists, a close collaborator, our dungeon master and podcast editor, all wrapped up into one person. So we hope you enjoy this episode with him. So, without further ado, I'm Souvenir and this is Talking Lion. Well, hey. Hey. Hello. <laughs> How's it going? It's going well. It's very nice to have you on on the episode. For, it's so good to finally meet in person. Is I, meet oh, in man, person. It's so good to finally meet you in person. <laughs> For those who don't know, we have a, a storied history with Mr. Souvenir. It's just, you could just say Souvenir. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Mr. Souvenir is my father. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll talk about how we all met like later on, but... Sure. Um, it's good because I actually don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. But we interact and intersect so much in our lives in just such an awesome way. You have been helping out with the editing of Talking Lion. That is um, correct. You have been helping us with songs and helping our collaborators with songs. We play a weekly Dungeons and Dragons game that we've been uh, a year we and do. a half into the campaign of that you you created. Um, and we, yeah, we created. It's collaborative. It's collaborative storytelling. storytelling. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there's been all these like areas that we've been able to, I think, very significantly like collaborate creatively, and it's been awesome. But I mean, more than anything. We are fans of you as a as an artist. We kind of met in a music context, but outside of music as well. And we got to like become fans very organically of what you do. I mean, our most listened to record of last year was Dream Journal. So anyway, I a long rambling. Strange. All this all <laughs> I was saying is that I'm just happy that we're finally here and doing this, you know? Yeah. I agree. How are you? Um, I'm doing okay. I took an accidental nap before I came here, <laughs> nice. which is, you know, kind of par for the course for me. <laughs> so, you know, I woke up and immediately upon waking up, I texted you guys saying, I'm on the way. <laughs> oh, I mean, you're one call- of those people. No, that's that's the Nate Flag special. <laughs> yeah. Because mentally I was, you know, yeah, mentally I was, of, yeah, when, I was on the way. As soon as you make the decision to be on the way, right, you're on I'm the on way. I'm on the way, yeah. So, you know, that, I mean, yeah. that's, that's what I believe. I've had friends who've gotten mad at me for that stuff. <laughs> for that but, philosophy. For that but philosophy, like, yeah. You can't change. I think it's a defense mechanism almost of like. It's also, <laughs> I would say nine times out of 10 when I'm like scheduled to do something with someone and they push back 30 minutes i'm like thank exactly God. even t- today i was like i was working on something this morning i was like getting up i was like oh, i don't have time to make coffee i gotta start setting up for the podcast you're like i'm 20 minutes late i'm like yes this is it this is exactly what i need so right honestly now. i think it was a pretty good bet that you guys would be like oh, okay i can relax a little bit that's the perk that's, that's, that's you know stress. and that's the uh the great perk of being a freelancer is that we can all get away with it i want the great <laughs> perk of living in los angeles too mm-hmm. you know 
it's the zeitgeist. It's the zeitgeist. Even even my doctor's appointments, they're like they're like <laughs> well, I, you know they're expecting you 15 minutes late. You know, we even uh, it's not been my experience. We went to, with, so I, I went to the Huntington Garden the other day, um, and they say on the ticket like you buy a ticket for a timed entry, and then they're like arrive no later than one hour, and just for a number of reasons, we arrived an hour and a half after the time ticket. The ticket was for 12. We arrived at 1.30. So I, I walk up nervously like, oh, are they going to turn us away? It's technically a holiday. Like, I really want to see these plants. And there was, they, they, didn't <laughs> care. they didn't care. They're just like, yeah, go right ahead. And I'm like, oh, so you're you're a liar is what well, you are. I, I, well, the I thing mean, is, they, there's the stated grace period and then the real grace the period. The real grace period. Because yeah. like, it's basically saying you're going to arrive at one. <laughs> yeah, but then exactly. there's, obvious, there's, there's obviously in addition to that. I saw this Benny Blanco clip on Instagram where he was talking about his kind of experience in the music industry of deadlines and the thesis was essentially just like it has never mattered like everyone's always like oh we got to get this song done by this time it's like yeah but why what happens if it's pushed back a week which happens if it's pushed back a month at the end of the day what does it really matter which is a dangerous line of thinking very dangerous <laughs> <but also laughs> very dangerous line of thinking true. but also gets at something where it's like like who cares if your well, song is up I, later i work in film which there are like pretty strict deadlines but also there's a lot of like wiggle room for like what you can submit or like how half finished right. things can be and like sort of touched up. Right. If, if you yeah. have a bunch of people working on something, somebody's going to be late with something. It's <laughs> the job of the producer to predict the um, delay. Like, yeah. The, you know, the, 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 just the penalty. The bacon. Yeah. Ba- bacon. 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 Baked in delay. <laughs> bacon delay. Bacon is fine. Um, I made an egregious error on Monday, which is that I arrived 15 minutes early to your house. And um. I was just, I was, I was just so <laughs> you, flabbergasted. You walked in, you said, you said of all the days. <laughs> of all of the days. Because well, the thing is, <laughs> your house hadn't loaded yet. Like we walk in, there's a loading screen. Yeah. Like you're, there's objects in the kitchen rendering in real time. Yeah. It wasn't ready for, to be witnessed yet. Um, <laughs> this happened to a session once I woke, I literally woke up to a text from our, our friend Caroline, who's a manager saying like, uh, are we still on for the session today? And I went, ah, uh, Yes the session today i'm also in my pajamas just waking up and the uh, session yes. is in the valley so i like sprint out of the house uh you know get to the session as fast as i can and i walk in 20 minutes into the session and they've written the song and i just plop myself down on the couch tweak a verse melody and i have 30 uh, of that song well that's great <laughs> yeah you know that's the biz that's baby. the biz that's the biz baby <laughs> it's like the john mulaney bit where it's like the people used to go and just wave at, at uh ships, uh, ships as yeah. an activity <laughs> It's a funny concept, but I'm sure that if John Mulaney said it, I would find a way to not laugh at it. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> Mason, you and I on that front are in lockstep. Are we? Oh, yeah. Are you actually? Yes. I didn't realize that you were one of the few in the proud. Mm-hmm. Few in the proud. <laughs> the few yeah. in the proud. Um, yeah. Well, just before we get too deep on hatred for a specific <laughs> beloved person. Uh, slowly tarnishing his own reputation. Yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. Becoming less and less beloved, I would one say. One child at say, a time. You know, the hex is working. <laughs> Our hex is working. <laughs> the other night, I had a studio session. I occasionally engineer at this professional studio in Rampart Village. So and professional. I mean, I say professional studio. Oh, I guess, I guess like, as opposed to like, like a, as opposed a bed- to a home room, studio, home yeah, studio. yeah. It's like, you know, they have a bunch of rooms with all the like top of the line equipment and stuff. And I mostly am just engineering for rappers, just basically tracking vocals over their beats. And occasionally they'll show up early and I'll get like the, the Slack channel will be like, oh, your client is out front. I think my least favorite part though about being late for something is that you don't get that fun car time. Like, there's nothing like being parked outside after you've driven in traffic for 45 minutes. You just check your phone. <laughs> you listen to the rest of that tune you're playing. You don't time it out so the tune ends right as you pull in? 
I mean, Mason, if I had that kind of power, I'd be uh, on Jeopardy, you know? You'll get there. One of these days, I want to be able to just time out my life. I, so far, I'm able to play a chorus when I, like, my bike hits a certain part of the hill. That feels good, yeah. But hey, let's let's take a little time machine. Let's talk about time travel. Let's talk about time travel. Oh, no, actually, we actually do disagree quite fervently. On well, I wouldn't say fervently. I, I would that, say it's complicated, but we're we're, we're getting to, into what dangerous if, territory. What if we flirt with the idea of talking about time travel? We for cannot. Another 10 we cannot. Here's the thing, Mason. And yeah, I wanna, okay. I want to get I want to get the story straight. Let's do it. Because you are one of the most interesting people I know. And I don't accept that. I've been friends with you for three years now. Yeah, let's call, let's call it that. Yes. Am I over? Am I no, over? No, no, that's am that, I overstepping? No, 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 no. You're good. Yeah, you're yeah. good. Uh, <laughs> I do. feel feel like we spend a lot of time together. We talk quite a bit about like philosophy and life and everything like that. But then sometimes I'll just learn little details about your life. I'm like, oh, you know, I didn't know that. Or like a thing you did or something like that. I'm like, oh, that's fascinating. Or a screenshot from Law and Order. So I just want to go back and just kind of get the story straight. Who is Mason Maggio? And then who is Souvenir? What is a Republic of Wolves? Where is the Where Republic is of Wolves? Republic Where of on the map? Yeah. Okay. Well. Where are you from? I'm from Long Island. Of course, um, yeah. Um, born and raised on Eastern Long Island, just shy of the Hamptons, but sort of on the border between. Just is it more West Egg or East Egg? <laughs> Neither. It's interesting that I've never perceived myself to have a Long Island accent, and I don't think anyone else has either. And and yesterday I was told that I have a Midwestern accent. I was about to say you're more Midwestern. That's accent. so interesting yeah. because I hadn't heard that until yesterday, and now that I think about it, my mom is. Like grew up in Missouri and mm. sort of has that middle America accent. So I guess I probably picked up most of my, the way I speak from her. But my, I mean, my dad's Italian American, but still doesn't. Everyone else in his, like, in my like extended family on my dad's side has a distinct like Italian American, Long Island or Brooklyn accent, depending on where they, where they live. Cause I have this just big network of cousins. Well, you're, you're sort of swarthy, dark-haired too. cousins. In, no, uh, in yeah, I'm, I'm, I have I have that thing of like my mom is from the south, my dad is from the Midwest, and I sound like I'm from right the and, East Coast. And I'm I guess sort of have a bone to pick with your mom. With, <laughs> Do you have a bone to pick with his mom? Yeah, oh, with yeah. with with her choice to not let you have a South African accent. Listen, we because don't. It, we really. I think it helped me in a lot of ways. I think culture shock would have been so much worse coming to America if I. Oh yeah, didn't he, sound American. Yeah, but also it would just be really cool. I mean, think of how how much we ostracized Max for his accent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Max, our token British friend, yeah. our token yeah. British friend. It's, it's all in good spirit. You guys have had your fun, you know. <laughs> your Max, empires. if you're listening, if you're listening, I'm sat here at Talking Lion, <laughs> thinking about you, bruv love. It's all bruv love, bruv love. I think I have a more classically New York accent, but as as our friend Meg actually pointed out, that developed more out here. Really? Than anything else. Because I think when I was growing up, one, I watched a lot of movies. So a lot of how I was talking was like influenced by, you know, that kind of pattern and that kind of way of speaking. And my parents don't necessarily have thick New York accents. So I watched videos of myself when I was like 13 and realized that like I had really, really bad TMJ and just it was untreated for a while. So I just never enunciated anything because my jaw couldn't move the way I wanted it to. And now I still can't, but <laughs> but now I have more fun with it. That reminds yeah. me of I was recently watching an old home video with uh, me and my brother, and I don't I didn't notice this with myself, but I noticed some things like when my brother was you know eight or nine years old, there were certain times where he would speak, and it sounded like he was 
at that point in his life, developing a very like strong, like Long Island accent. Long Island. And, and it, that's not how he speaks now, nor how I ever really remember him speaking. But in those videos, there's like one moment where we had just gotten treats from the ice cream man. And it's like, it's the one with a baseball mitt that has like the gumball in the middle of it. If you're familiar, the pink baseball mitt. Who is okay, familiar? Okay, sure, yeah. just making sure. And he's and he's like, he's eating it. And then he starts eating the, the gumball. And he says, these balls is like gum. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just such a good quote. I just, I just imagine him like a child saying it the way you just yeah, said it. Like that, that, with that, yeah, that it's amount of like, depth. It's a five-year-old. Daddy, these it. balls is like balls gum. Like gum. <laughs> Forget about it. Forget about it. Yeah, well, you know, may- maybe, maybe we're, we're kind of realizing the... Um, the root, which is that anytime we we even try to parse your storied history, we go on these tangents. It's by design. By design, he's no, he's um, obfuscating. Ob- he's a deflector. Say it, say it again. Obfuscating. Yeah. So sure. did you I did you live one. in Long Island? So yes. So like, <laughs> were your, your, your parents into music? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I grew up on Long Island to the point where I even went to college on Long Island. I did. I was not ready to leave Long Island when I graduated high school, so I went to Stony Brook University, SUNY school, and uh, great French fries. How do you know that? It's, uh, Who told you that? Yeah, the Pen Dragon series. <laughs> wait, really? Wait, what? We're we're tangenting. Yeah, wait. What? No, I, okay, I mean, but, okay, but the, whose fault is that? Mine. <laughs> <laughs> it's always my fault. How good can a French fry really be? Okay, shut there is a, there is a mouth. limit. There no, but is that's a, what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, there's a limit. Like like what is the best possible French fry? The best possible French fry is the McDonald's French fry. Like I mean, that's not true. But also, <laughs> yeah, but also, like, the best possible French fry hasn't actually been made. Like you're a food person. It's yeah, like, exactly. It's, it's like as Taylor Swift says, the greatest films of all time were never made. It's true. The greatest French fries of all time were never made yet, at least. There is an optimal French fry. Yeah, it's like saying I the best song. I don't right, <laughs> and I think the best song that has ever been written. Probably never left someone's bedroom. Okay, I'd argue consistency I think that, like, is just, important. Yeah, that's what the, the McDonald's fries is the best because it's no, always it's not good consistent. wherever no, you go. It's, no, it's, it's not. It's not consistent. I accept that opinion in my life. My actual opinion on French fries, I am not comfortable saying on record. <laughs> what? <laughs> Should we go back? How did you get into music? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked. Did you take guitar lessons? I did for a time. I grew up essentially without much music in my life. Like, What do your parents do? Both of my parents uh, were flight attendants. What? Wait, what? I think I've told you this. Yeah, I, I did actually know I, this. I didn't know this. So both of my parents were flight attendants. Did um, they meet attending? <laughs> <laughs> they were attending. They were attending to the flight. They didn't meet in the air, but they met, I think, through mutual flight attendant friends. My dad has crazy stories about like when he was a single flight attendant and one of the few like straight male flight attendants at the time, like bars and and weird places all over the world in in Morocco and and France and Egypt. And did he meet Frank Abagnale Jr.? Probably. That's a great movie, man. Yeah. Catch me if you can. Carl Hanratty is Tom Hanks' best uh, character, in my opinion. But my mom stayed a flight attendant. So throughout my childhood, my mom would be gone for two days at a time, three to four days a week. Your relationship with her was kind of up in the air? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Nate. Sorry. I'm sorry. In all seriousness, it was, you know, complicated by that, you know, intermittent absence. Those circumstances contributed to certain anxieties that would later come to fruition. 
in any case, neither of them were particularly musical. My dad had been in some plays when when he was in, in high school and stuff, but it wasn't a big part of my life. But he would play music a lot, a lot of weird music, like a band called Soul Coughing that Ooh. my dad was probably one of a hundred fans of this band. <laughs> the singer would just come up with the most bizarre lyrics. And I'm sure that this influenced me in, later on, but there's a home video of me as probably a five or six year old just kind of sitting on a chair, like waving my legs around and singing along to these lyrics. The lyrics are, get onto the bus that's going to take you back to Beelzebub. Nice. And I'm just a five-year-old singing those lyrics, just super into it. So my dad introduced some very strange musical influences early in my life. But I wasn't at no point before I was like 13 years old, was I ever like, particularly into music. Like I had preferences, but I was never like a fan of any particular artists or anything. And I never thought about playing music myself. That wasn't really a thing. And then around middle school is when that changed because I think I started looking for like sort of acceptance in social groups because I was always, you know, just kind of the nerd in school. And that was like my thing. Um, And I wanted to be like in more of a social group And those were often divided by like what kind of music you listen to. And that sort of put music as a personality trait on my radar. And then honestly, there are a couple things happened around the same time. My mom's brother passed away, an uncle that I had only met a couple times. So I didn't know him super well, but he was a musician. He was a guitar player and a songwriter, and he left us a bunch of guitars, just like nine Mm. guitars. So I suddenly had access to all these guitars. Around the same time, I saw the movie School of Rock. Hmm. And I'm not kidding when I say I came home from from watching that movie in the theater with my parents thinking, I want to learn to play guitar. That <laughs> yeah. was legitimate. That'll do, a it. Legitimate, That'll do it to you. Absolutely a decisive factor in my choice to start learning guitar. And around that time, I also started getting into pop punk and stuff. So big Blink-182 phase. Who among us? Right. Who on God's know? Green Earth has not. Yeah. Which I, I want to plug right here. You're... Online songs cover, I listen to very regularly still. Please don't remind me. Put your pants behind me. Shots so bright and blind. How should this would end? And I am not fine. So you won't know. Streaming used to be my game. Just pretend. Thank it you. is so good. I appreciate that. No, yeah, it was funny to like go back and do things that remind you as much as your music taste might have changed over a decade and a half. There are certain things that don't change, and how good those early Blink-182 albums are is a constant. Well, you know, I feel like what was funny is when we started Sleeping Lion, we would drive a lot, you know, because we were playing shows in various areas. And so we would just listen to just all the stuff that we both sort of collectively listened to when we were younger. Somewhat hilariously, we. I mean, that's one of the that's one of the best things about taking road trips with your friends. Oh yeah, it's like going back and rediscovering old albums that you Mm -hmm. loved. Like that's so much fun. We would scream them at the top of our lungs and then get to the show, and we'd be like, "Why? (laughs) Why can't we sing? Why can't we sing?" And then at one point, we're driving back and we're like screaming a Lincoln Park song, and we both go, "Oh, (laughs) right." (laughs) Um, But what was you know, it's interesting. It's like I think the two things that I tend to very much always lean into is like very anthemic choruses mm-hmm. like things you could sing along with not just like sing along with but like that a crowd should sing along with and a lot of counterpoint like counter melodies or things being borrowed and shifted around and everything i think a lot of that comes from like Cody and cambria lincoln park fallout boy and blank 182 yeah but like you know i don't think i would have necessarily connected the dots on that but then you when you know when you go back and you listen to it and you're after you've written a shit ton of music you're like oh right i'm basically just trying to write 
something that made me feel like, you know, 10 speed of yeah, God's I mean, blood and burial. The, the, I forget what this is an Oliver Sacks thing on like, this is your brain on music. I, I forget where the research comes from, but even just like neurologically, the music that you listen to when you're 15 gets printed into your brain and oh, your personality, like more concretely. Yeah. Like it's like in the development of taste from like a neuroscience perspective, like your taste will evolve as you get older, but because so much of your personality forming happens with puberty, the media that you latch onto in those periods is kind of an immutable part of you. Like you will evolve from that, but like it is such a part of your wiring at a certain point, especially if you go into creating music of your own, you can't escape I mean, the is gravity. It's not of that. a long winded way of saying once an emo kid, always an emo kid. Yeah. You know, no, but like there's science. Yeah. No, but yeah. <laughs> it knows hitting us with the science. Right. Yeah. And I, I, love that there, I love that there is science behind that. <laughs> So it's interesting that you say that about like anthemic sing-along choruses and that and that because I obviously listened to a lot of music that had that aspect. But when I started writing music of my own, I really shied away from that. It was a long time before I wrote a song that even had a chorus with the same lyrics mm -hmm. every time. And I think like by that point, I was also sort of being influenced by some more kind of indie emo folk stuff that was more freeform with that structure and, and that lyrical consistency. Did you have a death cab phase? Oh yes. Okay. Yeah. hundred percent. I'd say, I'd say when I like cold, you know, when I first heard your stuff, that was the first connection. I mean, it was more of a, like a Ben Gibbard, at least just style of writing or like sure. style of production. Yeah. It's hard to really trace like who of all the, of all the artists I've been a big fan of, like who, influenced the process well, of me becoming you, a songwriter the most. I think you synthesize them really, really yeah, well. Yeah, it's, it's a big stew. And it's yeah. been stewing for long enough that all the flavors just kind of intermingled. Yeah, like oh. souvenir, souvenir. Republic of Wolves is Republic of Wolves. And if you say, oh, it's influenced by this or that, you can hear it for sure. But like also, yeah. I think the sum is better. I think, parts, I think that was the thing know? that struck me when I first started listening to your music more just like as a consumer of music, as a fan. Like the thought I had that like bubbled itself in my brain is like, oh, this is like a synthesis of all the stuff I like. Oh, that's the goal, I guess. Yeah. I, mean, I feel like maybe I should just like give a quick little primer of the fact that Souvenir is my uh, solo project. Yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah. That I've been working on since 2014 or so intermittently. But before that, overlapping with that, um, I was in a band called The Republic of Wolves with my friends from Long Island. We were like more of like a post-hardcore emo rock situation. It was also very much inspired by like the emo of Long Island, like Taking Back Sunday and Brand New and and um Well y'all did Warp Tour at one point, right? Yes. Uh -huh. So that was sort of like I guess kind of the climax of of that band was us being invited to do a week on Warp Tour, eight days on Warp Tour, which is not, you know, not as cool as doing the whole thing, but it's something. It was very cool for us because, you know, I had gone to Warp Tour a few times as a as a as a younger teen and uh was very excited to be on the other side of it. Hey, we, we, we've never played Warp Tour. Well, I don't think we would have had an opportunity to. <laughs> but how fun would it have been? Well, I can tell you, it was fun. <laughs> no, you know, actually, there was um at Playland in Rye, New York. You know Playland? No, I've not been to Playland. Playland is like from been the to movie Rye. Big. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was like a almost like a battle of bands to get a slot on on Warp Tour. And um, well, I, that's sort of like what well, it was like the Ernie Ball battle. The yeah, bands, yeah, yeah. Where, yeah, where we were one of four bands that made it to the finals where we got flown out to L.A. to play the Fonda, which what? was that's crazy. Sick. Yeah, that's sick. And that was the first time I had been to L.A. coming with my band for free, getting free guitars because that was part of the prize package for the finalists. Balls, it was like, better, yeah, yeah, just obviously incredibly terrifying there's so many free guitars in your life <laughs> yeah yeah I've, I've never paid for a guitar man 
I have I've paid for one guitar. We found a tailor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we didn't end up winning that balance. It was a whole there were four bands. Three of them were from the East Coast and one of them was from Seattle. The band from Seattle drove down with all this crazy equipment. Like, Those like bastards. They're bastards. like the, the rival team in a sports movie with the nice uniforms. You practice a lot. Right. And, and they put on this crazy show. Like they had smoke machines and lights and, and shit that, that none of us, none of the other bands had. And Bad. what kind of sucked is that they went third and we went fourth. So we had to come on stage right after them. After, <laughs> But I sort of made a point to try not to watch any because I was just backstage like freaking out before getting on stage at the Fonda to play because we had never played a stage like that. Crazy. I mean, we're, we're sort of jokingly saying those bastards, but like, I, you know, I grew up in Westchester, which from a financial standpoint, there's a lot of dynamics, I would say. And the battle of the bands I remember playing, you know, I'd come on with like my hand-me-down keyboard and my $30 guitar amp for my keyboard, you know, that yeah. like is whatever I could find or buy with my chore money or piano lesson money. I taught piano lessons mm-hmm. for a bit, you know, but then you'd have these bands with these beautiful drum kits and these massive bass amps and they would just sound great because they had money and right. we didn't. And everybody who's done battle the bands in that, you know, it's not unlike the music industry, privilege be privilege, yeah. luck be luck. Right. You know? And I also want to specify that we didn't think that we necessarily deserved to win over this other band that had all the bells and whistles. We just would have preferred anyone else to win besides them because of the like the obvious disparity in what they were logistically capable of providing as a performance. You guys go up forth and you're like, this song's called We Hate You, Please Die. <laughs> yeah. It's the scene from The Wedding Singer where he's you know, a little <laughs> singing his song about Somebody kill me, please. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody kill me, please. Honestly, banger. It so is good. a really good song. So we were doing that post-hardcore emo rock project. And in 2018... How'd you meet the Republic Boys? So two of them uh, I went to high school with. And we became very close friends starting like 10th grade. I didn't really start writing music until I was hanging out with them. And, and like I would write my own stuff. But a lot of time like we would just hang out in uh, my friend Billy's basement after school and just come up with either stupid joke songs or sometimes slightly more serious stuff that we actually thought sounded cool and good. And a lot of times it was a weird mixture of both. Like we weren't sure what we were doing, but we were just making stuff that we had fun making. And sometimes it was not terrible. And it was a while before we actually were like, hey, let's actually make a band and be serious about it. And the way that that ended up happening was we did some rough demos and a friend of ours was like, oh, this sounds like the band Brand New. And quote unquote leaked sections of those songs on YouTube of our songs saying that they were new demos. I can understand why somebody hearing a downgraded quality of me singing on those like very like kind of dark emo tracks would maybe think that it sounds like like that's brilliant. Especially in the wild west of YouTube days. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and my and our friend just thought this was funny to post like leaks of the new brand new songs like clips of three of our songs. And it pretty much blew up. Like within that world, <laughs> they blew up, and That's we got some crazy accidental guerrilla marketing. It yeah, was it was kind of brilliant. Yes, it should have been intentional, but it wasn't. <laughs> and better. but that's just like it's a perfect way to illustrate just how insane like what we do it's is, so and like how you never it's you so there's silly. almost no way of predicting what is going to work in your favor, and whether you're even going to be aware of the thing that ends up working in your favor. Because we didn't know that that was happening until like he, our friend sent it to us, and like, hey, look at this, and like we're seeing like thousands and thousands of views on these videos, and people commenting like, is this really brand new? Is this really them? And then like that debate about right. whether it was, like, well, we say every action has an unequal chaotic reaction. <laughs> sure, you know, because yeah. because that's like 
you know, we can spend all this time trying to do this thing that we think is going to work. And then we can like, as a joke, post some silly thing on TikTok. And then that's the thing. Well, that's why I've embraced my TikTok character. Well, I feel like we should get to that later, but we will. How do okay. So yeah, how did you? How do you interface with this? Do you do you did you disappoint them? Yes. So so basically, there was one main um, forum slash website that specialized in sort of that music scene. It's called AbsolutePunk.net, and they started posting about our songs. So we like very quickly reached out to like the editors there, and we're like, hey, this is a big misunderstanding. These are clips of our demos. We're a band. We legitimately didn't even have a name nice. at that point. So we very quickly were like, well, we have to come clean. <laughs> we have to make this an actual band. But then obviously from that, the people who legitimately liked those songs and found out who they actually were, they became fans of ours when we actually started putting out real yeah. music. Like we had a, like that built in, like ready to go fan base, which was yeah, crazy. Yeah, you literally just targeted your precise demographic of fans. Right. Accidentally. I mean, yes. <laughs> but in any case... Um, at that point, we basically put together an EP as quickly as we could. Which EP was that? So that was our first EP. It's called His Old Branches. And then we got an offer to sign with Equal Vision Records, which was for us, like we were fans of bands on that label. And at this point, I'm in my sophomore year of college. We strongly considered the idea of signing to a label, but we knew that we would have to basically at least temporarily drop out of college and this was just suddenly like dropped in our lap. What were you studying at the time? History. Hit. Oh, of course yes. you were. I, I was a history So you've major. never been doomed to repeat yourself. Exactly. That's. <laughs> <laughs> and I also was like, I had not yet grappled with my anxiety disorder. So I, we had played like one or two shows and they were just horrible experiences for me. So Because you're like having a panic attack. Yeah, yeah, no. Panic attacks on stage every time. Horrible, just terrible time. I had, by, by the way, from my freshman year of high school, been developing this anxiety disorder that I didn't understand what was wrong with me and thought I had, you know, some kind of terrible uh, degenerative brain disorder or something like that. Like I thought I was either going insane or something was physically wrong with my brain, you know, like to the point where like I was pretty sure that I was going to die at a young age. There was a period of time where I was I was pretty convinced that I would not live much longer like well, the, was, do, the doom the doom yeah the, the in one of your songs you mentioned also like almost like a near-death experience that you were saved by an, an epipen epinephrine oh no no no. okay there's a song called carol's first bad summer yeah which nate is a big fan of huge fan of that's um, noah erasure i love that song. <laughs> that is no erasure <laughs> Okay, that's no that's, Danny that's fair. That's, we literally were at your house last night that, singing that is, all of the that, words that, very loudly at you while you that played That is true, it. and you did and you did say it's the you best song ever. a live ever. concert while I was... Oh, God no, damn it. No, we were just, just listening listen to a couple demos. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but there is a lyric about, um, I thought I was dead at 16. What a waste but of I could have learned some kind of lesson. What a waste of epinephrine. Because I didn't mean to make a scene thought I was dead. Epinephrine being like adrenaline, essentially, oh, oh, just yeah, like yeah. the natural hormone in the body that triggers that fight or flight response. And when I wrote that, I was literally thinking about a time in high school when I suddenly just started having a random panic attack in the middle of health class, I think it was. And um, everything got really hazy because I was dissociating hard and um, just total derealization, total disassociation, fully, <laughs> fully out, out your mind, mind. Yeah. Um, as Bo would say. 
at this point, I was not telling anybody about my experiences at all. Not close friends, not my parents, nobody. And I remember raising my hand and like interrupting the teacher to say, can I go to the bathroom? And I'm sure this looked very weird for other people. Um, but I legitimately thought like, I felt like I was dying. Mm-hmm. And she kind of begrudgingly says, okay. And she's right a pass. And I remember like writing out just like the word pass on a piece of paper and handing it to her. And she thought I was like being a smart ass, I think. But like, she was like, whatever, like and signed it. I got out of the classroom and started walking down the hall and literally just felt like this is the end. It's over. Yeah. My brain was like telling me I was fading from existence. It was terrifying. And then and that's not the only time that that sort of thing has happened. But sure. that was the one that stuck with me the most because it was the first time that it was so acute that the idea that I could have or should have learned some kind of lesson from that is the fact that even after that, it was a long time before I actually sought help, sought help yeah. and found out what it was. So yeah, so I consider that a, a waste of, of epinephrine. Hmm. I fun. guess for some reason, I like associate epinephrine with like an EpiPen. And sure. so for some and reason in my head, I'm like, did he have like a peanut? Like, Well, I understand your confusion happened? because I do carry an EpiPen because of my red meat allergy, but that's a whole different, a whole, that's a whole really different thing. neither here nor there. Um, I mean, I guess because we are just talking about that song, like <laughs> just while we're there, um, that song actually was, you know, the demo of that song it had such a profound effect on me. There's Crazy. this line in there. Um, I'm going to butcher it if I try to say it, but the the um, I, I still feel guilty when I give in. Like half a fucking milligrams of cardinal sin. Um, but I admit, I think I like who I am when I'm taking medication. Now I still feel guilty when I give in. Like half a fucking milligrams of cardinal sin But I admit I think I like who I am When I'm taking medication So that's the line that like when I first heard it just I completely like broke down because I was having a really really tough time and therapy didn't solve it or like Mm -hmm. help it gave me tools to, to handle parts of it but not like the actual physical sensation I was having of this sort of cloud in my head. And, but also I'd seen medication really hurt a lot of the people that I was close to. So I was very scared of it or felt like if I can't, you know, do this on my own, like who am I? Or like, am I cheating if I have to take medicine to be able to, and of course that's ridiculous. Yeah. Spoiler alert. You're not, it's not, it's not, it's not true. Literally like I'm listening to Jed Apatow on, you know, on Mike Birbiglia's podcast, you know, and he's just like, yeah, you know, I've been working on all these projects since COVID by sheer force of will and Vyvanse, you know? (laughs) But yeah, the thing is, is that the day after I heard that demo, I was at your house we were all just kind of like doing work at your house, just like hanging out at the house. And I, don't I, I think maybe you were writing with Jess. Oh, you were yeah. Okay, with my partner. Yeah. And I was at your house just like hanging so, out while you guys were doing that. And I literally like went onto a website that doesn't sponsor the podcast. So I won't shout <laughs> them out. Um, Let's ask Jeeves. <laughs> yeah, I went to ask Jeeves. And I like just made the first appointment to talk to a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. So it was just. That's awesome. There was a lot of stigma around medication growing up for me. Oh, yeah. Uh, or just in general, I think, for everybody. Yeah, but I just don't think the world we live in is natural. Like, I don't think a human being is equipped to handle the stimulus. Anything at all. Anything at all, yeah. <laughs> like, we're not built for it. So, like, obviously, you know, the solution to a human-made problem is a human-made solution, That's right? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting one. I, I don't necessarily agree that you know these issues are human made I, I think it's just part of our condition that some of us I think it's a spectrum I think 
everybody is psychologically a mess and there are different ways of dealing with that and coping with that and growing from it. And some people don't need any help with that. And that's yeah. great for them. They figure things out as they arise and they never really need any any outside assistance from that. But I think historically speaking, I don't think there's been a time where there weren't people who just had some part of their brains or minds that made it so that they had a much harder time dealing with just living. And of course, it's a whole nature nurture yeah. situation, like, you know, mental illness and the genetics of that and the mm -hmm. physiology of that. Like there's a well-documented or semi-well-documented history of that. Well, because uh, I think the, the problem with documenting and classifying the beef, you know, that, that I have with the DSM oh. is... And psychiatry and medication and treatment of mental health in general is that the goal of that is the underlying goal. And maybe this is reductive, but to some extent, the goal is there is neurotypicalness. There is a normal way for a brain to behave. And then there are mm. deviations from the normal way. And that the goal is to make the brain behave normally. Which, you know, like I said, maybe is reductive, but I think that like, if you get too deep into the weeds of it, then it's like, well, what is, how should I, a brain be? And I guess what I'm playing at is normal has evolved to include things that I actually believe if you really step back, aren't normal. The constant pings of your phone or the constant advertisement or the constant, those types of things. The, so the go fizzling. take a walk in the woods, Nate. Yeah, all right. You know, that's that. There's a little bit of diet and exercise, right? But no, but but also, I guess, kind of what I'm playing at as well is that sometimes mental illness is triggered, or sometimes mental illness is exacerbated, or certain traumas form, especially these times that we live in, put yeah, a lot of strain. It's a I lot. Think. of It's like yeah. a lot of exacerbating circumstances. Yeah, yeah I, I I don't disagree with that. To, to Noah's point from before, I do agree that psychology and psychiatry in general, the attempt to sort of categorize and compartmentalize different disorders and illnesses and, and sort of prescribe a sort of correct way of thinking. It's inexact and it's occasionally problematic yeah. and it's, it's very dicey. And in my experience, the therapists and psychiatrists that I've spoken to personally generally agree with that. Yeah. That's so true. I think there that is, is a good amount of self-awareness within that community that that this is it's this kind is of the, an inherently tricky thing. To yeah, like this with. is the best that we can do in terms of putting this into language that is easily understood in like sort of a medical context. But it is ultimately nebulous and enigmatic and confusing. Yeah. And at, at the end of the day, any attempt to help people is kind of noble and worth well, because I think it comes yeah. down less to normal sometimes and more to bearability. Like yeah, exactly. I don't necessarily think that any of us in this room think normally, but I think right. that you know having panic attacks or having depressive episodes or even like the kind of manias that could be you know dangerous or whatever. Like there's a level of bearability. I mean, a lot of the uh, therapy I did was like resilience training. So mm -hmm. a lot of like being able to just take what's happening in the world, not necessarily how do I act normal around it, but just not having like the waves of it rocking me, you know, necessarily. Just, just like internal coping, coping mechanisms. Yeah. yeah. Which I've had plenty of experience yeah. with. And one thing I think is is interesting in terms of medication, I think I'm sort of paraphrasing something. I think it was Hannah Gadsby who, who made this point. And there, I'm sure, are others who have made this point. But part of the stigma of psychiatric medication, medicating for, you know, disorders of the brain, um, part of that stigma includes this idea that you become less of yourself when you take medication. You are silencing some 
inherent part of your brain that makes up who you are. And so you're becoming a lesser version of yourself. And I, I reject that personally. And I think that's totally off base because I think there are cases where someone takes medication when maybe the best course for them would not be to take medication. But in most cases, when medication is is strongly suggested by therapists, psychiatrists, a lot of times it is what allows someone to be themselves because it takes away this disorder or illness that is not who they are. That's not, I, I'm not my anxiety and depression. You know, I'd like, yeah, those experiences are part of me, but they're also external because they are happening to me. Mm-hmm. And basically in the song that you were referencing, what I'm talking about is I literally used to be terrified of going to the beach. I used to be terrified of going to the movies. I used to be terrified of going into like Manhattan when I was in New York. And I internalized that and said, that's just who I am. I don't like these things. I'm not a beach person. I don't like going to the movies, whatever it is. And I convinced myself that that was true. And some then I, of my, uh... some of my hesitations. Yeah. But that's at a certain point when, once I actually started going to therapy and, and dealing with, with my, with my shit, I came to the conclusion that that's absolutely not who I am. Those are, those are behaviors that I learned out of fear. And then starting to do those things again, you know, with the help of medication really drove that point home. Like I can be who I am thanks to medication. And so I think that's something that like, isn't talked about enough that sometimes just accepting help in whatever form, including medication allows you to be the person that you actually are underneath whatever fear or insecurity or baggage you are dealing with that is not part of who you are. Very well said. Very well said. And that song hits me in 80 different directions. Like it's just so, so good. But all this is to say that you, all this was going through your head while you were contemplating this record deal and dropping out of college. Oh, right. We're going back to that. Okay. Yeah. Um, That was the tangent. That was the tangent. So let it be known. I always keep track of the branching. (laughs) Timelines. <laughs> so about time travel. No. So anyway, I hadn't yet properly dealt with my anxiety and depression at the time that I was being asked to drop out of college and go on a, a nationwide tour. And we, we had other reasons, artistic reasons why we didn't want to do the things the way that this label would have wanted us to. So we ended up just kind of doing our own thing and continuing to be self-funded and, and independent and releasing our own stuff. And I'm proud of what we did for the most part, but it never really took off. Do you like look at that deal as a kind of turning point? Like do you- Kind of. Well, I did for a while. And then I had a conversation recently with Chris Wall, our drummer, who at that point- Lovely guy. Chris, if you're listening, I love you to death. Charge your phone. Yes, please charge your phone so we don't have (laughs) another mishap. We tried to see the Batman uh, twice when he was in town recently and uh, we literally failed twice- it's a long story, not not really important for this. But anyway, for the longest time, he was always the person who who was very much like gung ho about let's drop everything and make this band work. But like always, I like, continued to say like, yeah, we should have signed with Equal Vision, you know. And like two weeks ago, when he was here, he said, I think that not signing with Equal Vision was the best decision we ever made. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, what? 
And I needed him to sort of unpack that. You're like, I've been to therapy for years talking about your feelings on this. (laughs) It was more or less that just knowing how a lot of those sort of record deals for smaller bands work out, we probably would have ended up in the same position but in more debt. In more debt. Yeah. Yeah. In, yeah basically. Yeah. Yeah. And with a worse like experience. Like yeah. with, with just I like mean, you ha- put out like, a lot of records. Like maybe you wouldn't have been able to put out all right. Those we might have yeah. put out one record that we had a terrible time making, and then because like we're such a tight friend group, who knows if that would have ended up driving us apart? The additional stress of doing things. Not in our own way, but having someone else sort of like, not that all record deals are like sort of dictatorial. <laughs> but they, but they are. But it's still but they other are. people. It's other people right. influencing your project. And even in the best case of scenario, that's a negotiation. And it's almost definitely going to make it less fun. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's fine sometimes. But in that situation, it probably wouldn't have changed our fate. Like the type of music that we were making was sort of falling out of fashion. And it's funny because now, like, we still have those records out there that are getting listens and stuff. I mean, the wonderful irony is that, like, you could find that like the song goes viral on TikTok through somebody using it as a sound, you know, a year right. from now or something. Yeah. We stand by that if like all of our machinations wind up not working for us, you know, we'll probably wind up getting sampled by some kid 10 years <laughs> from now. Yeah. yeah. That's the hope, you know. I mean, if you put enough stuff out there, like the chance just goes up exponentially that like at some point something is going to happen with one of the songs that you created and put out in the world. And I was actually watching a TikTok video today. You know, I mean, obviously, I love chaos and the concept of it. Oh, yeah. Re our Dungeons and Dragons campaign, which we'll be talking about in a little bit. Oh. Um, (laughs) But they were talking about a double pendulum, which Mm -hmm. is a pendulum that also has another pendulum attached Mm -hmm. to it. And that it is not random. It is chaotic. It's like impossible to predict, though. It is actually possible to predict if you know the starting point oh right and and the whole idea of it is you know that's how statisticians come up with the bell curve and all that as well because if you have enough instances of something happening you can actually get a very consistent outline of it and i like to think about that with with music you know that like we see these certain phenomenons or anomalies happening but they happen somewhat often because so much is happening Mm -hmm. all of the time, you know? And so, yeah, as chaotic as the whole thing is, I just do like this idea that there is, I mean, if not a predictability about it, because we can't predict it because we don't know the starting point. But there is an order to this, to the magnitude of stuff. Yeah, there's a statistical distribution. Yeah, statistical distribution. That provides me with a weird amount of comfort. Yeah. 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 Oh, there's comfort in chaos. The dark can be nice. The dark can be nice sometimes. <laughs> I will say this is only slightly related, but I feel like I have to share it is a joke that my math teacher used to love. And I, I think is very fun in a dad joke kind of way, which is the following. There are liars. There's dirty liars. And then there's statisticians. <laughs> <laughs> you told me that joke before and I love it. It's so good. <laughs> it's so niche. <laughs> it's so niche. I thought you were going to be like, there are liars. There are dirty liars. And there are outliers. That's pretty good. It's not bad. <laughs> right? Not as funny, though. It's not as pointed. No. <laughs> at a group of people. Yeah. It's not as mean. It's not as mean. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, who hurt you? Statisticians. statisticians yeah. <laughs> His parents were killed by a, by a rowdy <laughs> band of statisticians. Yeah. On average, they were spirit. mean. Nice. Yeah, I don't know. Let's um, call let's call J Maya get her get her pun on this. Yeah, God, she she. Can you give us some uh, statistics some pun, please? puns, yeah. please? Y'all get any more of those puns? You and J Maya, uh, friend of the pod, worked mm-hmm. on an ad with uh, my partner, yes. uh, Bashlow. Lovely, uh, lovely Bashlow. I love I love the people coming together. Yeah, and it's I mean honestly, 
connecting with you guys was such a such a great thing in so many ways for me just as a person and as like a musician because you guys have so many connections to great people like talented people but also just wonderful people to be around and to work with the people that you gravitate towards and who gravitate towards you like you guys just have such a great network of people that you interact with and connect with each other and to be part of that is like it's our life's work it's like a huge honor just to be part of that group i mean we've waited a hundred episodes for somebody to (laughs) (laughs) actually i mean that that's everything to me i i've been really sort of turning over this sort of idea of like be careful what you wish for because i genuinely feel like everything i wished for came true i just didn't know i was allowed to wish for more than what I wished for. Hmm. Like I, uh, again, I'm referencing this podcast. My, it was Mike Birbiglia and Jed Apatow, but um, somebody asked them like, like at what point did you guys know you were successful? And Mike goes, I'll be honest, I set my bar for success so low <laughs> that like when I was working the door at the comedy club and being able to see comedy for free, I'm like, I made it. Right. And I've been thinking about that quote a lot because my sights were set so towards survival and, and what I wanted my life to kind of look like that the sites weren't necessarily that far, mm-hmm. you know, and and now that I, like all of it's kind of come to fruition, I'm now like, oh, OK, like I maybe could have had bigger dreams, <laughs> like but you could have manifested. I could have manifested a little harder, you know, but when I moved out here, my dad used to sort of jokingly call me Gertrude Stein, almost on my request. Love it. He found like a note thing that I wrote on my desk. And the the header was Project Gertrude Stein, is what it said. Okay. And it was a list of all of the artists, filmmakers, creatives that I knew in LA. And it had lines that connected all of them. That's um, crazy. <laughs> one color line was like, do these people know each other? And Nate, that's deranged. <laughs> I know. Um, no, no, I love it. Oh, I, you I, have <laughs> no fucking idea, Mason. Uh, I haven't yeah, even gotten into... the little piece of paper is only the tip the, of the ice. Yeah, <laughs> this little piece of paper, again, it had one color line, which was actually like people who did already know mm-hmm. each other, and one colored line of people who I think should know each other. Okay. Um, like people who I could connect <laughs> or like that we could do something collaboratively, all of yeah. us together or something like that. And so my dad found that piece of paper because I called in my head Project Gertrude Stein because I loved the idea of like the Midnight in Paris, yeah. salons, everything like that. So I told him like when I come out here, my my dream, my goal is to be ubiquitous. I didn't specify for my music. I did not specify ubiquitous to the world as a household name in the pop space. It was very specifically, I mean, if I'm spe- specified anything, it was that if you are creative in Los Angeles, we know each other. And to that end, I think I've done all right. Yeah. You're, I doing, you're doing great. Yes. I, re- I appreciate it. Like I said, I maybe should have specified for something that like was like maybe a little more lucrative. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it has been very rewarding to like, you know, to go to a party and be like, oh yeah, you were my first friend in LA. And then go to somebody else and be like, oh, you're also my first friend in LA. And yeah. and just kind of realizing. Well, you, know, was, you know, they say if you, if you shoot for the crest of a small hill, you'll probably make it. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> if you miss, you'll find yourself in the grassy knoll. <laughs> yeah. But um, you know that like image from Always Sunny, the famous image of like Charlie Day and like the Of course. The, of I course, love that yeah. episode. My wall of my apartment 
had a strip that said New York, a strip that said Nashville, a strip that said Los Angeles, a strip that said Europe. All of Europe. All of Europe. All of Europe. Yeah. Those were the headers. Mm-hmm. And I had color-coded post-its with people's names on them. Uh, people that you knew. Some I knew, some I didn't. Okay. And it was orange was music. Green was film. Blue was like a company or a label or something like that. And I basically put all of them under each, like hundreds of poster notes under different categories and then string connecting. So I, cause what I used color to, was the string? It was a white string, uh, but, I, but I, would, I would literally like stand back just to be able to look at the web of people. To look upon your works and just <laughs> Did you find the killer? <laughs> the killer was me the whole time. <laughs> All to say I'm crazy, but it worked, I think, a little bit. I feel like we didn't finish the thought of how do you go from being a guy in a band to a guy alone making music? Right. What was that transition? Well, and I guess well, can I can I also piggyback? You on alienate that? your friends. That's fair. True, that's fair. That is one way, but that's not that's not what happened. Oh, well, I was also to piggyback on that too. What was your aim in studying history, like right. and getting a degree in history and all that jazz? I'm glad you asked. I've always loved history and mythology and language and everything. So in college, I was. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do with a history degree, but I knew that I loved history and I, I loved being in college and I loved learning. And, and, and I just, I thought I didn't really have a specific idea of where that would go. But towards the end of my senior year, I decided, you know what, I'd like, I like this. I'm going to apply for grad school. I took the GRE, which I, I love standardized tests. That's something weird about me. I love to study for. I and actually take do too. I don't like the six. essay parts though. I like yeah, 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 yeah. No. So yeah, so I went to grad school for history for a year. I jumped oh, right into grad school. Yeah, so I jumped right into a PhD program, which which was fun, but very in labor intensive. And it was around what that region p- of history. Were you studying medieval history, specifically um, Byzantine and? Um, I spent actually a lot of my first year in PhD really? program writing a paper on medieval Venice. But during that time, there's a lot of foundational texts that you have to familiarize yourself with. And I realized if I commit to doing six more years of this, I'm going to regret not trying to be an artist. And at that point, I was pretty sure that meant music, but I was also really interested in film. And um, so I, I took a leave of absence from my PhD program, which I'm still on. Nine years, nine year leave of absence. Guys, if you don't support me enough, I'm going to go back to school. Yeah. I, I don't know how I could physically support you harder. No, I'm talking <laughs> to the listener right now. If it's anything like Berkeley, you can just tell people you're a PhD. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I am a PhD. I'm a Berkeley alum. Isn't that true, though? Isn't that I mean, just... I, I didn't finish. Oh, you didn't? Oh. Yeah. Well, yeah. you're an alum because you you were, went, you yeah. went. Basically, you're, you're not way, a graduate, you're an alum. classifies their alumni is if you like set foot in the building. If you set foot in the building, they're like, you're ours now. Great. I love That's that for you gist. guys. Yeah. Notable alumni. It's yeah. like Jimmy from the pizza stand. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so anyway, so I went through a period of, of a couple years where I was just kind of taking odd jobs and stuff. I was making music whenever I could, still working on the band stuff and also doing weird stuff like a lot of background acting. Is that where the Law and Order? Paid audience work. Yes. That's when I was on featured heavily on Law and Order. <laughs> 
sitting right next to Mariska Hargitay in uh, the front row of a courtroom. I have no idea why they put me there. I was extremely underdressed for the occasion. <laughs> I was wearing a green sweater and jeans and I think sneakers. You look amazing. And they put me like in the foreground in front of Mariska Hargitay and just told me to just react. They just like, you this guy. sit right here. I'm like, really? <laughs> you know, you got to do what they ask you to do. Well, maybe we've talked about this, but my hometown is Dobbs Ferry, which is uh, the river towns in uh, Westchester, New York, mm-hmm. are very beautiful, very scenic, and would be the location for a lot of shoots. Uh, and also my like high school looked very like, I know what you did last summer. So oftentimes there would be some kind of shoot going on in my town or the adjacent town. But I'd, you know, I'd walk down the street to get a bagel and it would say, if you enter this area, you'll be an extra, oh, you know, really? uh, yeah. And you might have to stay for the day. And I'd be like, oh, sick. I'm not doing anything. <laughs> and I'd just be an extra for a day. And how do they keep track of everyone who wandered? Was there a PA who there, was there like. Were, there would be PAs. Like there were certain areas they would section off. But there were other situations where it was intentionally supposed to be like, this isn't like an extra situation. You're just sort of there. Like they shot Wolf of Wall Street in the town adjacent from ours. Like, so for a little while we saw like, you know, Madi and Leo just sort of walking around. But that was a situation where like they had to close off the street because they had to have old cars driving Mm -hmm. back and forth in the background. But I was an extra in a little known show called The Leftovers. Here we go. I don't know. You like the show. Yeah. Well, again, no, I just, I just, I hate for that to come up and then know that we can't spend hours <laughs> an hour talking, talking about, about it. it. Yeah. Um, if anyone's going to start a leftovers podcast, it's you too. I really think that we should do I, it. I think we're going to. I it's think it should be called Let time. the Mystery Be. That's good. Right? That's I've been thinking good. about this. <laughs> Speaking of Sylvie, Sylvie enters uh, Chased by a Bear. <laughs> yes, we, chased we, into my life <laughs> yeah, by, a, by bear. a bear. We love Sylvie. <laughs> Sylvie co hosts um, my favorite podcast, which is Hey, hey Chums. Chums. Which hey, is. Chums. Which is an unofficial, unauthorized Shark Tank podcast. I've done a couple sounds for it. You've mm-hmm. done some sounds done for some, it. Yeah. Um, and it's... Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I was through the process of making the hate chum. Chum Steve Like, is there a lyric that <laughs> really stands out, out to you? you? I think the lyric that really, you know, when I listen back, I'm like, yeah, that was a real kind of turning point. Like, the lyric that sort of cracked it was, um, hey, chums. <laughs> when I say, hey, chums, you know? <laughs> Yeah, because that's the name of the show. Oh, wow. I do. I do. Yeah. Brilliant. I feel like probably anybody listening to this, we've been like just like slightly negging each other. Just like it's just how we talk to each other. Like just in general. I feel like anybody listening to us who doesn't know that we joke around. No, I, no. That's yeah. That's fair. There's we kind of just give each the other best a little bit. Interpersonal of shit. relationships have a nice flavor of light emotional abuse. I mean, if you <laughs> fuck, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> if you can't make someone feel bad about themselves, that means you don't really matter to them. Yeah. So you fair. have to exercise that mm-hmm. just to keep proving to yourself. I matter to Nate because I can make him feel bad. <laughs> Friendship is like one of those properties. But in any case, I ended up moving to Brooklyn with my now seven-year partner, Sylvie. Um, a gem and a legend. A gem and a legend. We met basically when I was doing um, an extra job for her web series that she was working on. And then we moved in together within a year in Brooklyn. What's but, moving in uh, within a year like? I have no And You know, no you idea. just have to experience <laughs> Yeah. <right? laughs> For those in listener land, I moved in with my uh, partner uh, after two weeks. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I love it. Yeah. Sometimes you just know. Sometimes yeah. it just, you know, it's going to work out. And sometimes you just hope it does. Yeah. Actually, you almost <laughs> never know. <laughs> yeah, you never know. <laughs> you really never know. You almost never know anything is basically my my viewpoint on life. Just got to try things. I just see what don't happens. think anything is, means as much as it ever needs to mean. Like, it, yeah. Sometimes, no, yeah. Sometimes you can just vibe. 
Sometimes you can just vibe. <laughs> that's like there is a universe where there's a self-help book titled Sometimes You Can Just Vibe. <laughs> so I spent some time um, starting to get into co-writing and starting to really realize that I loved pop music and trying to kind of branch off into that world. You know, writing music that I knew that I wasn't the right person to mm. perform. Like How did could... the this because I, I love this journey for mm-hmm. people like us. What was the for lack of a better term, like come to Jesus moment yeah. with, with just figuring out that you love pop music when I assume there was probably a kind of no, a previous nose turning at it. I was never particularly dismissive of pop music, but I didn't really pay much attention to it until this might sound fake, but it's real. When Taylor Swift came out with Red. Fake. <laughs> never happened. I don't remember what drove me to start listening to the songs closely. But at a certain point, I actually... For maybe the first time in my life, I sat and I listened to a couple pop songs in headphones, not just overhearing it on the radio, and realized this is really good music. And it's very different from from the stuff that I grew up listening to and the stuff that I've made and the stuff that I've gravitated towards, but good in such a different way. Mm-hmm. And I listened to it all too well, and I was like, okay, this woman has some beautiful things to say and beautiful ways in which to say them. I missed All Too Well somehow. I did not know All Too Well until Danny introduced it to me. Yeah, Genuinely. I, I, I didn't yeah. And then I listened to the song Holy Ground on that record, yeah. which which is one that is criminally underrated, I think. It's one of my favorite Taylor Swift songs of all time. But anyway, and I sort of became a half-ironic Taylor Swift <laughs> lover until at a certain point I realized it wasn't ironic at all. Yeah. I'm just a fan, and that's fine. Yeah. At a certain point, I realized, like, wait, it's totally fine to just be a fan of pop artists, yeah. to be a fan of mm-hmm. pop music. And so she was sort of my gateway into accepting all of the merits that pop music has. And there was something in me that really wanted to be involved in, in the creation of that. And then I started really looking into the whole field of songwriting as a career. This is when I'm living in Brooklyn. So the idea of moving to L.A. to chase that sort of started there. I spent more time in Manhattan than Brooklyn anyway, but... Oh, you're more of a Manhattan guy? No. Yeah, maybe. And I didn't want to be. No, I love yeah. Manhattan. When I think I'm about- i East Village rat, if you will. I don't miss living in New York, but I miss the concept living of New, New York. York. I mean- <laughs> so I actually, I'm almost jealous you got to have both the experience of like being in your 20s in New York and also living in Los Angeles. So I know that I can't you've rationalize. Got some, you've got some 20s left if you want to go uh, Yeah, no, I just, I can't rationalize ever kind of going there. But um, one time I got a stress fracture in my foot from walking around Manhattan- in bad shoes. <laughs> wow. We, yeah. The worst blister I ever got is I, I bought a pair of my favorite boots at a DSW in Union Square <laughs> and broke them in by walking from about 110th back down to Union Square. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> New shoes. And okay. that was the worst I'm sorry, blister I've ever gotten. I'm getting a stress fracture. <laughs> like, I have very like, weak <laughs> feet bones. We haven't we haven't even left New York yet. This is the no, longest really, interview. Let's get out of New York. Let's get out of New York. Fly, me out. fly us out. Hopped uh, off the plane on LA. Three emojis or less. Why did you leave New York? Yeah. Hollywood land. Hollywood land. Every song sounds the same. <laughs> so finally kind of pulling the trigger on the decision to move to LA was a big turning point in my life because it was a big departure from what I had always known and from that sort of current that my life seemed to be just like it, it was the most active choice that I've ever made. What what year? 2018. Hey. Late August, early September. So that's about a year after we did. Yeah, we took an amazing cross-country road trip. We we packed up my my 2007 Santa Fe that I got from my parents. Um, but once we were in the car driving out of New York, it was just the biggest sense of relief. 
I did not have many connections out here. I knew a couple people that I had met when they visited Brooklyn. I think mostly people that I had met through Mackenzie, aka Mothica, just a handful of people, um, one of whom was Alex Aller, who I've continued to make music with, who's a very close friend of mine, very talented singer-songwriter. She was making pop music at the time under the name Skella. And I reached out to her and I was like, hey, I just moved out here from New York. I think, you know, we've crossed paths once or twice in New York, sent her some of the stuff that I had worked on. And she was like, oh, that's great. I love your stuff. Like, let's work together. And it turned out that like she had been wanting to transition to a more singer, songwriter, acoustic folk project uh, under her own name. And she heard what I had done being mostly kind of in that indie folk vein and was thinking that, you know, I'd be a great person to work with for that transition. And I was thinking, oh, it'll be great to work with her Mm -hmm. to get more into pop. And we ended up making the majority of a full length album together. And we've continued to work on some other stuff as well. Well, well, in a lot of ways, I think that like our friendship wound up sort of budding because of her as well, because we all like really more formally met Mm -hmm. at our friend, uh, Victoria Schaefer. Yeah. She threw like an an empty pool party, which is that there was a, a... a pool that was being drained and that we we all like sort of piled in and the acoustics were great. So she threw a show there and I played solo mm-hmm. and you played with Alex. Yeah, I, I played um, guitar with Alex. And my my brother was there and but you came up to me and you said, Hey, I'm Mason. Like we kind of know each other, but like we had crossed paths a couple times. Yeah, but, but let's but, like formally sort of you were genuinely like you literally I remember said, let's actually be friends. <laughs> well, yeah, because you seemed like a great guy, but like we had never had like a real opportunity to like actually have a serious conversation. Like it was always like we're at a show and we say, oh, hey, what's up? Good to see you. You know, and similarly with, with Noah, I, at least. I mean, less frequently, but I think I, I, I knew you as like you and been like Hi. I knew you as like the other guy from Sleeping Lion. Well, and, yeah. and you were the sort of conglomerate of like all the things that I like in general. I've just been ashamed of myself about. Like I didn't remember the times that we had met. Similar to how you I just called remembered. me a conglomerate of no, all the I, things <laughs> you are ashamed of yourself about. That's the nicest thing anyone has ever said. I, to me. I mean, our <laughs> our meeting, myself in our meeting, was a conglomerate of things I was ashamed about because. Like it had the, I didn't remember the couple times we had met. And similarly, like, and I talked about this on the Jade's Goudreau episode, you were so nice and so eager to connect and be friends and hang out and write together that I immediately was on the defensive in my brain. And I was just like, what does he want? Like, what does he want? Like, what's his angle? What's his like, whatever. Well, it's totally, I mean, it's fair and understandable in LA and in the music industry specifically because socialization it has this weird overlap with networking in a like career driven sense where the lines get really blurred because especially I maybe mean, maybe this is mostly for people with social anxiety there's always sort of a, a question of what is driving me to connect with this person that mm-hmm. i have not previously connected with and will my interaction or potential relationship with this person benefit me in a way that is more than just Social. And that's, I think, the other thing, too, that, like, I I feel like I've had to just sort of unpack is even at that time, you know, I I was writing for a blog. So oftentimes a lot of interactions I was having uh, still would be like somebody's hitting me up because they want coverage on the blog or something like that. Um, And then we were doing sessions almost every day at that time, like literally session, session, like no sleep, you know, whatever, (laughs) pretty much nonstop. And because of that, like, it made my brain just have to, for not just my sake, but his sake as well, my brain turned into just a nonstop quality judgment. You know, I think that the the ironies are is that like our friend group is so 
eclectic and dynamic from a clout standpoint, from a what we do standpoint, from our interests and you know passions and everything like that. I think a lot of that comes from the fact that I just stopped caring. Yeah. And just wanted to see if I enjoyed the company, you know? And it's also the irony being that because every action has an unequal chaotic reaction, you can't control. Like, you can filter. Like, it's a a fine instinct to be like, well, I must filter every interaction by what could come of it. But at a certain point, you have to release that desire to control outcomes. Because you're legitimately, like, my favorite artist and, like, one of the few producers that I would trust with, like, my own music that I've been sitting on for years and with my partner's music and everything like that. And like, I almost didn't even interact with that because of some fucking number on a platform, you know, I, I that's because that's how my brain was right. like having to process it at that time. Yeah, But I just like came to the conclusion that I didn't like that whole concept of only trying to connect with people if they can further your career interests or goals or whatever. I didn't want to kind of just be playing a game out here. I wanted to actually find people that I connected with on a genuine level. Noah, were you at the pool? I was not at the pool. I've been thinking about this. I can't remember why I wasn't at the pool. You weren't at the pool because you were... Huh. Well, in any case... We, we the, met and then... I have a very clear Mason friendship origin story for me personally. Oh, uh, oh, I'm sure oh you have an origin met, story? Like, in passing, like at like a probably like a show or yeah. like in in other contexts but like i i'm terrible with that i notoriously forget all those interactions i remember them so that i can go back and think about what i did wrong and right then, watch the game tape but um we got invited to play a dungeons and dragons game and i remember you were sitting next to me and right. it was my first time ever playing Dungeons and Dragons. And I had a great time with the game. And I caught the bug of like, ooh, I kind of want to do this, this more. Was a, this was a game run by by Jim mm-hmm. and um, and Billy Ray at their apartment. And uh, and I remember very distinctly, and maybe this is partially colored by retrospect, but I do remember very distinctly clocking. That Mason guy is really cool. I want to be friends with him. And it was, in this we're it was not regularly abs- playing trivia. It was absolutely point? mutual. And I don't know. That was probably around the time we were starting to play trivia. Together. Maybe. Yeah. There was a time when we were playing trivia where every time Max would go to the bathroom and come back and like throw out like some crazy answer to whatever question oh, they've yeah. been asked. But it was always like a really hard question. I was convinced that he had looked it up in the bathroom so was, so was the trivia master right yeah and then i realized like no he's he's just knows everything yeah. and sometimes goes to the bathroom no i i um at one point sort of like pulled him aside and said like hey you know like this is a casual game like it doesn't really matter if we win uh and he's like yeah why why would you say that? i'm just like oh well the trivia master said that he thinks you're cheating in the bathroom and and he goes oh and then he stopped going to the bathroom. <laughs> he just had to hold it but he still was fucking great. <laughs> he just knew everything somehow. <laughs> Speaking of trivia, though, you were on Jeopardy. I was. I was. Tell um, me about that. Uh, I've always been a big fan. Uh, have for years taken the online tests to be on the show. At the beginning of 2020, I got to the next stage where they they asked me to do um, an in-person audition. I was pretty sure that it wasn't going to actually come to anything. Just You just kind of log it away as something that like, oh, it'll be cool if this happens, but it probably won't. And that's fine. But then I got a call. Uh, I usually don't answer calls from random numbers. So I did uh, fine. Answered the phone and it was uh, the Jeopardy casting director asking if I could come be on the show in like 
two and a half weeks from that day. My whole thing, I specifically made a point to tell nobody except for my brother and Sylvie, obviously. Knowing that chances were I was just going to go on and lose, you know, knowing that that was the most likely outcome, uh, I didn't want to have any extra like pressure, pressure of feeling yeah. like people are already really excited for me and right. then I'm going to have to tell them that I, that I lost. Yeah, that's fair. And then I won twice, which was... Which is crazy. You won Jeopardy. It was just so much fun, man. Mm-hmm. I, I, the two weeks leading up to it, I crammed so much. It was perfect timing for me to just like literally devote eight hours of each day to studying and watching old episodes of Jeopardy because they rehash a lot of the same topics. So mm-hmm. you know, like, okay, it's going to be a lot of Shakespeare and presidents and, and capitals. Like studying and, for a standardized test, way. Yeah, essentially. I, I think what it, what impresses me a lot about you and Sylvie, like Sylvie just ran a marathon. Like you guys. She's, she's, a, she's amazing. I mean, you guys are both amazing because I was actually really thinking about this uh, while she was prepping for it, which is like, I can't really think of the last time I ever really prepared for anything. Maybe we had two, like a rehearsal or two for our most (laughs) recent show, but like the amount of like preparation you need to have. I mean, she had a daily plan for, you know, just getting herself to be able to even just do the marathon. And similarly, like you're winning Jeopardy and the amount that you do have to like study and practice the buzzer and the mm-hmm. topics and all that stuff. Like, I don't think I have like the brain to like even prepare for things anymore. Like, I don't know. Well, how you to- probably would if the opportunity presented itself. But like in the music world, there's very rarely a situation like that where you have a very specific goal and you know what you need to do to practice to reach that goal. Mm-hmm. It's very, mm-hmm. it's so much more uh, nebulous. Yeah. So it's it can be really refreshing to have those experiences where you know exactly what you need to do to be the best that you can at a certain Did you feel confident thing. going up there? No, not at all. Okay. Not at all. I think I was so excited. It's just so- You're very over- calm on the show. I was so overwhelmingly happy to be on the show that that managed to sort of override the panic that I would typically have been feeling in a situation like that. Because my first thought when they asked me to be on the show, the very first thing that crossed my mind was- no, I can't do that. I'll have a panic attack. I, I will be too anxious to do it. But then I realized, of course, I'm not going to let that make the decision for me. Of course, that yeah. would be, I, w- I would regret that forever. At the very beginning, I was, I was super nervous. Uh, my like legs were shaking during the first round of the first episode. Knees week, mom's spaghetti. Exactly. And then during the first break, I turned to the woman next to me and I said to her, oh, I'm so nervous. My legs are shaking. And she smiles and goes, me too. And it made me feel so much better. Like I immediately just. <laughs> You're like, I'm going to crush you. <laughs> and you know what? Hey, that your enemy right there. And I'm so sorry to that woman because <laughs> she could have just looked at me and said, really? And then she would have beat me. <laughs> she would have tilted you. Uh, so I will say that the experience of going on Jeopardy and just that confidence boost was was huge for me. That was just a huge sort of landmark in in my ability to kind of turn off the self-criticism that had that had hampered my my writing and and creativity for a long time. I you know I, I don't think I ever necessarily connected those two things but you did suddenly say, "Hey, I've been writing up a storm right it around was shortly that. after." Yeah. And 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 also part of it was was cuz you realized you were cool. Well, no, you, th- no, no, you, you no. are cool though. What I realized is that there's very little to be gained from being perceived as cool. There's <laughs> <laughs> because you because if you can be perceived as as kind and smart and funny and whatever, it doesn't matter if people think you're cool. They're going to want to be around you if yeah. they're worth anything. So I mean, I, but I, that also being all those things are cool. Like I don't. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, right. But we are going to get to Dream Journal. 
I just want to touch very quickly on the fact that we have been playing this Dungeons and Dragons campaign. Let's touch on that. For a year and a half now. Mm -hmm. When we started this, you sent us a 15-page document with a like decade by decade breakdown of the completely original history of this completely original world. And that's awesome. <laughs> that's cool. So I have so much fun with that. I didn't get into D&D until early 2020 when our friends Billy and Jim invited me and Sylvia to play. And Sylvia and I were both like, oh, this is amazing. And then I didn't mention this earlier, but when I was younger, I really liked to write stories. Like I was working on a novel when I was nine years old. (laughs) So what I realized really quickly is that I loved the aspect of creating my character so much and building out their backstory and everything that I realized I need to be a dungeon master and run my own sort of world and create all the like the lore and the and the history and the legends and the mythology and just like be able to just use that as a creative outlet because it's such a type of creativity that I w- have not found a good way to it exercise a in a long time. Creativity and history, almost. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So and it's it's more than just that. It's like there's such a as a dungeon master, you have to bring in you know your like interpersonal skills that get filtered through improv, but then also soft kind of like storytelling and screenwriting skills that one of the things I clocked last night in our session that now I I like I can think of a lot of examples of it but I clocked it really um actively was how good you are at horror <laughs> how how like how what a good sense you have for pacing a a unsettling or scary encounter and like there's been so many times throughout yeah, the, some of the dream sequences. So, so many times throughout the campaign that you have utterly terrified us. And I think I clocked like I had a little like zoom out moment last night where I'm like, oh, wow, like that's a that's a very specific skill. Well, well I think on top you. of that, too, you know, we have that, my character, Waster. Uh, he has an adoptive son now. You know, <laughs> you've got your character. Uh, Onidas. Onidas. Uh, and his um and his hootie flingus familiar. Mm-hmm. Um you know, you have all these characters that that have come in at different points in the story. You've been able to craft this narrative that is driven by what we want for our characters, by what fits into the overarching campaign that you are creating and have created, or you know, we've all, I guess, collaboratively created. Like, there's so much narrative to keep track of on top of the basic game mechanics, and you know, having each individual session not feel like fill or whatever it's just always extremely impressive and we're having just such a good time well you know, I, with I appreciate like, that a lot because even if you were saying that you specifically thought I wasn't good at it as long <laughs> as you were still showing up I would keep doing it right. <laughs> because it's like I love it so much it's just such a fun outlet for storytelling and the one thing that was the most daunting to me about it was what you mentioned Noah about the sort of that social interpersonal aspect where I have always had a degree of social anxiety and never been super confident about my social skills. So coming into this and starting to play this game, I really had to just let go of that. And just, again, this is kind of relates to what I was saying before. I just had to be okay with the idea of looking stupid because that's the thing I realized, like just doing like crazy accents and weird characters and presenting this whole world where we're like, you're probably going to get tripped up over something here or there. And like trying to like actually instill fear in in other people over an entirely fictional scenario that you all are creating just sitting around at a table. If you do that really poorly, there's such a risk 
of like looking dumb and mm-hmm. like 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 the, or like a perceived risk of looking dumb like and that's something that I've had learned to just let go of and like be like these are my friends and if I look stupid then so what I'm just I'm having fun and if they're still having fun then that's all that really matters and we're, we're all just- I, think, I think that's what I love about D&D is it's like there's the love that you feel for the game there's the love that you feel for us there's the love that we feel for you like it's such a facilitator of good energy and like good even, uh, good favor towards each other even when yeah, it's gets, like, like life gets busy or like it's been you know tough weeks or whatever like you know there's part of me in the back of my head that's just like this world doesn't exist until <laughs> we're all sitting at that table together yeah, like it's so beautiful you know and so like i i almost feel yeah, like a responsibility to the to the to, to waster show up or die show up or die you no know? Uh, <laughs> imagine if, if your favorite tv show didn't exist Unless you wanted to watch it, <laughs> yeah, 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 that's D and D. And the other thing, irregardless, regardless Ooh. of any, this guy was on Jeopardy. <laughs> regardless of any of those sort of you know personal connections, assuming that you're with people that you feel comfortable enough around, it's such an opportunity to sort of like let loose that childlike, mm-hmm. that playing pretend that people often don't get the opportunity to do, like in adulthood. And, and part of and it, we is, laugh us so much when yeah. we're playing. And like, part yeah. of it is like taking it dead seriously. That's part of it. Like really just immersing ourselves in that story and taking it seriously, knowing that like, that's the act. My my mom's job is she's a drama teacher, like an improv teacher, you know, and trying to get adults to feel that thing. And we had the pleasure of of having, of having her play with us. We had her play with us. And you know, what I think was so nice was that, I mean, yeah, God, (laughs) she was terrifying, but she expressed that like, it was just so nice that everybody nobody felt self-conscious or like whatever. Like she yeah. just, she enjoyed the fact that we could all dive into these characters in my head. I'm like, Oh yeah, we're just playing D and D. Like, so now I'm lost or now we're playing this thing. Uh-huh. But you know, then I'm sitting next to my mom. I'm like, Oh, this is probably the most kind of like in her world. She's probably seen me, mm-hmm. you know, since I was a kid, you yeah. know, like playing make believe yeah. kind of thing. So, and, and to me, it's not hard to find the connection between, between that act of, of kind of letting go and just being creative and silly and uh, the, the connection between that in D and D versus in something like songwriting in, in any sort of artistic endeavor. Oh, yeah. It's something well, it's collaborative that, storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's letting go of self-consciousness and just throwing ideas out into the world. And, uh, and you have to be willing to surprise yourself and you have to be open to the fact that you can surprise yourself. And that's something I think that I've learned. Well, cause you had told me at one point on the phone, when we were talking about the campaign, maybe six months or eight months into it, that like, you had a general, like, an idea for a, a plan of where the story was going, and then we did something. Oh, you derailed That it. completely derailed the yeah. story. But that's the kind of thing, like, you know, if you if I was writing a song and all of a sudden my plan for the song got derailed, I think I would experience that as a negative experience. But for D&D, that's almost what you hope for, is yeah, to have somebody it, it, rock you out of your plan. Hey. Should we finally talk about uh, your music, your dream, dream journal? Maybe. Um, yeah, Mason, editor's notes. Cut everything up to here and the podcast starts now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey. <laughs> well, hey. <laughs> dream journal was our favorite record of the year. I know it came out of this like very. That's very kind of you to say. I, as you know, I have a, sort of a, an issue with praise. Yeah. Praise and I've compliments. Heard that. I've heard that before. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not going to argue with you about it. No, I think that what is special to me about the record is that. I've always, like, I've been trying to make folk music for years. And there's something that has always kind of felt missing in how I write that I feel. 
I don't want to say like, I think the closest to creative jealousy is sort of where it's at because I feel like you have this sound that you've honed for a while that is clear and consistent and the way that you write is so strong. I mean, one of our first like long conversations was we were just talking about like lyrical philosophy. Mm. Um, I mean, we can't even go into this, but like we did the Vampire Weekend Contra together. Cover uh, album, yeah. Contra cover album <laughs> together. Your first um, official collab. Our first official collab. Um, and uh, just, for, just for timeline's sake, it was still middle sort of quarantine world. And I had always had this perception that Vampire Weekend's second album was very <laughs> underrated and maybe less accessible than some of the other stuff because of the production style, which I personally love. But I also was thinking if you stripped these songs down to just like acoustic guitars and, and whatnot, they would just be very beautiful songs. Well, and, I never and, got into Vampire Weekend because I actually had trouble accessing them. But in us covering Holiday, mm-hmm. I wound up actually having a real big appreciation for it. If I wait for a holiday also, when I'm having a bad day, I like to imagine Ezra Koenig like listening to the Contra record and being like, nice. <laughs> and I'm like, that's so cute. Yeah. The fact that he gave gave it a shout out was amazing. It just I wanted to just create something. And at that point, I was still sort of in the middle of this bout of like, I'll call it writer's block, even though that's sort of a, of a mythological term, but I didn't feel confidently creative for a long time. And towards the end of quarantine, I thought, you know what, why don't I just do this thing where I get to cover one of my favorite albums and get some really cool voices and reach out to some people that I only kind of know. And that was a great aspect of it, having the opportunity to kind of remotely work with some people that I had only had these vague kind of connections to was really cool and, and helped develop those relationships even more. And so after, yes. Yeah. So after that, something sort of just shifted where I just realized that I should just be making the music that I want to make. Cause for a long time, I think I was really hung up on what should I be doing? Should I be trying to make write pop songs for other people? Should I only be working on collaborations, co-writes? Should I, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know what I should be doing. And then I realized there was sort of like a turning on of a creative faucet or something where I suddenly felt able to accept the ideas. Because for the longest time, I would come up with the seed of an idea, a little verse melody, a lyric. And then before it could ever get to the point where it was really something, I would dismiss it as as stupid, as being bad. I would I would just immediately throw it away. And at a certain point, I just started trusting myself a little bit more and just acknowledging that if I feel good about something as I'm making it, it's worth chasing that and it's worth following through to some extent. You know, obviously you can feel good about something and keep working on it and it turns out to be something that you end up not happy with. That happens. But I decided I'm going to just follow through on the ideas that feel good and just let it unfold and see what comes out of it. Well, then you made a perfect record and then asked us to pick which ones we should (laughs) shoot in the back of the head. uh, (laughs) Pretty pretty uh, much. Assassin style. So so that turned into an EP called Dream Journal that I was, it was the first music that I had made in a long time that I just felt like it was, you know, representative of who I am as an artist. And, you know, I, I didn't really pull any punches in terms of the lyricism. And I was just really following my own compass, even though that's obviously very cliche, but it is what allowed me to create um, unapologetically. I mean, I'm, I'll never forget being at 
Max's house, like in the middle of the pandemic, and he's playing some music. <laughs> and I'm like, this is gorgeous. What is this? And he goes, oh, it's, it's Mason. You haven't heard his music? I'm driving home from his house. I call you and I'm like, what the fuck? You're incredible. <laughs> like, what, like, and you're like, you're like, oh, whatever, you know, whatever. We had all had a very similar experience, I think, with with Dream Journal. And we've been, I think in a lot of ways, like what was so special about the record was that knowing you, for all the conversations that we do have and all the t- ways that we talk about introspection, some of those darker fears, some of those like things that maybe we don't often talk about, that we do have this privileged view to see them in the songs. Mm-hmm. And I think that, because you and I are, are similar in a lot of ways, especially how we like process like loss or memory or nostalgia. I got to just sort of either experience really connecting with a lyric, like a lot of Annie Emma Hawk hits me in such a specific place. And I, you know, almost every line of that song really like resonates. Which ones don't? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's get into your least favorite <laughs> <Yeah>. lyrics. <laughs> least favorite lyric of Annie Emma no, Hawk. But, that- but that's the thing is like, I'm like, God, like, you know, we weren't super close, like, around my sort of thinking about certain people or certain losses, but how does this song capture how I felt so accurately and how I think about it now even so accurately? But then, you know, I'll listen to real life and I'll be like, ha, like, we're in the gang vocals and that makes me so happy. (laughs) Or even, like, a song like Radium. Like, I actually... The amount of times I've cried to Radium is off the charts. I I get actually very... wild. I get very emotional listening to Radium at the end because people listen to it. The ending of Radium goes like this. You're talking about dying and about what happens after yeah. you die. And I remember, I think all of us were in the car and we we played Radium. And you're talking about like people, you know, hanging out like after you die and talking about you and, and whatnot. And I'm like, oh, that's us. <laughs> like there was a, this very emotional moment of us being like, oh, like we get to hold parts of your life. You know, we get to tell certain stories or whatnot. And that felt very special like realizing that in that song, but also made us very sad because we don't want you to die. Mm-hmm. And if you died, fuck it. It's Thanksgiving Eve. We'll stay at the bar till the I thought you were going to say, if you die, fuck you. Oh, yeah, Which, I fuck fair. you. Yeah, 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 that's not allowed. No, that I, I was also saying, because not to jump ahead, no. but we have been sitting on the demo version of your next record. Mm. We have been. And uh, without your permission, uh, <laughs> me and Danny have been listening to it. Uh, on I, repeat. They, I didn't say you couldn't. I <laughs> I mean, we, we have two. Literally, we'll be in the car. We're like, old Mason or new Mason? What do you want to <laughs> listen to? Yeah. Um, and the thing that struck me as we were listening to Carol's First Bad Summer in the car yesterday. Oh, it's so good. Was your lyricism, to my taste, is like the perfect balance of like flowery and down to earth. It's the thing I'm most jealous of out of anything. It's because I've, I've always felt this way. Like being a listener of Bonnie Vare being a listener of Bright Eyes mm-hmm. and artists, even people like our, our friend Max, artists who have an ability to write 
more esoteric or out there or more diagonal kind of writing, being a fan of that kind of writing. But when yeah. I put pen to paper, it's so matter of fact, this is what's happening. This is the joke. This is the bit. This is the thread. I'm always envious of writers who I feel like can write a little more laterally. And I feel like you have yeah. such a wonderful vocabulary of writing that can be painterly and impressionistic, but then you land a gut punch with a really just matter of fact, like we're sitting in a room and you just said this to me kind of line, you know, we're still playing Dreamcast on the floor, trying not to make the sunrise because there's leaves to rake outside. Stuff like that. They're just like, I don't know. It's, it's really cool to me. Just the amount of sort of imposter syndrome that I feel just being told that that you guys are in any way jealous of me. Just like, oh, the, I mean, the, we talk about it constantly. I just, but I just respect both of you guys so much as, as writers and creators and everything that it's just it's sort of jarring and sort of like a cognitive dissonance to sort of hear. And also, Noah, I feel like the way you just described my lyric writing is like you perfectly described what I am trying to do in a way that I never was able to verbalize it and have never realized that's what I was trying to do. <laughs> like that's what I am have been subconsciously or unconsciously sort of chasing. That's like sort of, I guess my goal when I'm writing there's sort of the synthesis of the different lyricists that I've been hugely inspired by, you know, Justin Vernon and, and, and Connor Oberst and, and Ben Gibbard and, and Taylor Swift. Um, On that, I think that like, whenever you send songs, I give, I give notes. I'll give notes whenever I like anything. I don't even know necessarily if anybody should take my notes because like what I like about your music is that I didn't write it. You know, like mm -hmm. I think what I like about your music is that it's so as close as anybody's ever gotten to exactly what I love and exactly how I want to write, but that I can't do. And that's the thing is like, there are times when people write in a way that I don't like and I want to change it and fix it. And there are times when like, I like what I've written, but there's something really about how like, you know, something like um, in Hang Your Paintings on Me, you know, the, the line that we screamed when you played it uh, at our house, you know, it's not that I like to sleep alone. It's just the devil I know and you're a devil I don't. It's not that I like to sleep alone. It's just a devil I know and you're a devil I you're taking the metaphor literally, but also like taking the whole thing seriously. There are jokes in your music, but at no point are you necessarily like trying to be like, you know, Bo Burnham-esque kind of funny. Though there is that sort of funny feeling turn of phrases, like yeah. the whole world at your fingertip, ocean at your door that he does kind of thing in a lot of how you write. But I also think about even the more poetic lines like in Anyama Hawk, you know, do you remember being tethered? You know, me neither, what a crime. But if our different iterations coincide, I hope catharsis takes its time. Do you remember being tethered? Yeah, me neither, what a crime. So if our different iterations coincide, I hope catharsis takes its time. You know, that's a very poetic line that could just kind of fly over your head, but you break down the lyrics and it's like the most the most beautifully concluding sentiment you can to a song like that. But also it could just be poetry that goes over your head. And I appreciate that. There hasn't been a line of yours that and it hasn't been immensely rewarding looking at closer. Well, like half know? of them are just filler, so. <laughs> Fuck off and yeah, whatever, you know. No, no, no. But I, and I actually loved your your sort of analysis of those lines because 
I know what I felt and sort yeah. of what I meant in a conceptual way. But those are the words that I use to right. describe that's, it. Right. That's also what I like about it is I feel like it it never comes across as uh, try hard in any way. I appreciate and that a lot. It doesn't feel meticulous and like, and I mean that in the best possible way. It doesn't feel like you you agonized over what you were trying to say. Right. It and feels that, like you're just like this is what I'm saying. Right. I really do appreciate that, and that's part of that sort of newer process of writing. Like I, I I'm not by any means d- disowning or or putting down stuff that I've put out in the past with my band and and my previous solo music, but starting from Dream Journal, and then this new record. Sleep Study. Sleep Study, with a long-awaited follow-up. Part of that sort of newer phase of me as a writer is not agonizing over the specific wordings or anything. Like, not that's not to say I don't edit myself at all. Like, there are times when I realize that this line could be better and this word could be shifted or something. But in general, it's like what comes to me when I first write the song is more or less what I stick with because it's the most genuine form of yeah, that. And, and you've, then, you've earned that because you've been writing for long enough. Yeah. And, and I mean, I went through that whole phase of really trying to write according to the rules. Mm-hmm. And that has sort of enabled me to have that in the back of my mind at all times. And I'm unconsciously following certain rules when I'm just, you know, putting words down on paper and just just letting whatever happens happen there are still those sort of structural foundational rules that I've driven into my head over the years that are still there sort of holding that up, I guess. Is there a song from Dream Journal that you particularly love or a line that like really felt cathartic writing? All of Hang Your Paintings on Me really felt like a cathartic process to write because that song really came out probably the fastest and it felt the most to me like a return to to the way that I used to be able to write songs in a more in a more like carefree kind of way. I mean, it's, it's that was so- the one that stood out to me. That was we talked a lot about. Right. I mean, that was one that resonated. It, and it's sort of like this kind of simple little folk tune. I mean, that's how I perceive it, at least. But at the same time, it didn't feel like I was regressing back. It felt like to me better than anything I've done in the past. It's still, it's more informed by my experiences and, and I have more to say and, and I think that I'm saying it better and I feel like it really encapsulates sort of that feeling yeah. that I had and still sometimes have of being sort of a spectator in life and just sort of accepting that, that sometimes that's okay. Was that the first song you wrote for the project? No, oh, it was it was later on. When you turn the faucet on, you gotta let the <laughs> yeah. out. Yeah, you gotta let the plane song. Plane song, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't going to say. There, I like Plain Song. That song. I don't will, not like Plain Song. That song will get real. Wait, what's, what's wrong with Plain Song? No, there's nothing okay, wrong with it. So, so Plain Song was the Dream Journal reject. And I love Plain Song. What? Well, you know, okay. This is Plain Song Erasure. <laughs> I will not stand for it. Literal Plain that Song was the Erasure. First, that was the first song that I wrote for Dream Journal. Before I knew that I was going to make an EP, I made a song and it was and it was that. And, and that song ended up getting cut from the project. What do you feel like? is different about sleep study uh mm. coming out of dream journal because it's they do kind of intermingle it feels it feels like a natural progression they're definitely very much in the same universe and you touch a lot of the same themes what's the dividing line in your mind i think the dream journal songs were all songs that for the most part that i really had to write to process certain emotions that i hadn't expressed in my own way in a while i feel similarly that like all the songs that I have written for Sleep Study also feel like things that, that are important to me to express, but it's a little bit more playful. I'm like sort of experimenting a little bit more with like elements of production and the actual songwriting itself that are a little more fun, yeah, a little more energetic. I would say probably they're equally sort of 
introspective and, and sentimental, but I'm just able to play around a little bit more. Back my age immediately comes to mind. So catch me thriving in a fast-paced environment Gonna hang a bunch of shelves and maybe save for retirement yeah, I say there's some more of that sort of dark humor that I've just like had a good time embracing as just part of very much entwined with the darkness that, yeah. that still exists in pretty much all of these songs. I mean, there's sort of a nihilism and existentialism that kind of goes through pretty much all the songs, but there's also that element of being able to sort of kind of make fun of it. And yeah, it's like a little more ambitious. It's like a little more risk taking. And in my opinion, it all pays off. Thank it's, you. It's even better. It's so I, good. I, I, Especially really, the. We were I, literally joking around before you were working on it. Like, are we ruining Souvenir by telling him how much that we like his we music? Like, it, like, yeah. like, is he going to get in his head <laughs> and then the next record is going to be too self conscious? No, turns out you just made a fucking better record. That's no, just that happened. Well, I had a conversation with you. We had a late night conversation. We were up to like we, three and we got Taco we, Bell. Yeah, yeah. We were out, out in the world having a discussion about I was really starting to work on the new songs and I was really in my head about like the fact that, you know, Dream Journal didn't get a lot of place. There are not a lot of people listening to it, but the people, especially the people around me who have listened to it have given such amazing positive feedback that I was getting in my head about like, it doesn't matter how many people listen to it. The fact that the people who listened to it felt something and it meant something to them, that's a huge success. And the idea of continuing after that, following that up, I was worried. I didn't know if I could keep making good things. Every time I make anything at all, I mean, I it goes from as I'm writing it, oh, this is this is terrible, to after it's done, oh, well, I'm never going to top that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it did, and it's incredible. I don't know how much of it's going to be out by the time this is out, but my hope is that this record-long podcast, at the very <laughs> least, gets like one or two new diehard souvenir that fans. That would be amazing. Because- one thing that you said to me early on, that 100% resonated with me. If it makes me feel something as I'm writing it, it'll probably make somebody somewhere feel something listening to it. And that's enough. I mean, that's, I think that's what drives us in a lot of ways. In, in fact, I even see the numbers game that we're playing as well as like, you know, we want a song to do well, obviously for our own careers or whatever, but, you know, we write these songs not for us at, at a certain point. So if the song gets 100,000 streams or a million streams or whatever, the way I see it is that the more ears that get on it, the more potential it has for it to hit somebody exactly when they need it and and to be found by somebody, you know? And, and so it works on this, on any scale that you're playing, but I think it gets you out of this sort of, why, why are we doing this? Oh, we're doing this so people can hear it when they need to hear it, you know? And we play that at whatever scale you want, you know? But on that note, souvenir. Are you ready for the question round? The question round. I am. First question. Describe the first three TikToks that appear on your free you page. Right now, like right look now, at, look at this moment. Yeah. Uh oh. The first one is a Celine Dion and Smash Mouth uh, mashup. Nice. Makes a lot of sense. Yep. Number two is. Oh, uh, okay. I see. It's like a it's like a Star Wars mashup with the TikTok sound of like a person getting oh the hurt. person yeah, getting there yeah. hitting their self okay. in the bed. Yeah. <laughs> I don't frequent Star Wars TikTok, so that's interesting. Oh, and this is um 
<laughs> right, so this is number three. This is funny. This just says all girls like the same five dudes. Cry laugh emoji. And then it's like a cycle of pictures. <laughs> so it's Harry Styles, Robert Pattinson, Michael B. Jordan, the poster of the TikTok, like glancing at the screen and back again, and then Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> so yeah, cool. Nothing that really tells you anything about me. <laughs> no, 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 no. But it's the algorithm's interpretation of you. Yeah, I mean, I use yeah. TikTok in a very weird way, as, as we know. Yeah, your TikTok has been... It's been a little demented lately. I, I just can't take the app too seriously, so I'm I'm just really just using it as just an outlet for silliness. I mean, no one should take the app Nobody too seriously. Take the app yeah, too yeah. No, no, I don't mean to... I mean, uh, yeah. Um, what's your phone background? Stock. It's uh, Stock it's photos from the stock. start? Yep, oh. it's... It's one of the automatic Why? stock photos. Why? Because I never thought to change it. It's such a commitment to change your phone background. Does like you have to look at that all have the you time? Heard of tattoos? I don't. What? <laughs> <laughs> I. You know. I. It's just. I can't think of what I would change it to. I don't know what I would change it to. Maki. Yeah, it could be my. It could be the dog. I have a lovely, lovely dog named Maki. It's short for Kamaka, named after a street in Hawaii. Yeah, I guess if I were to give myself a non-stock photo background, it would probably be my dog. Maybe I'll do that now. <laughs> do you have a non-musical hobby that isn't D&D, Jeopardy, or... <laughs> anything any, we know about. Anything we know about. Something you don't know about. It's a, I mean, you know, I love, I love to do a crossword puzzle. I love, um, obviously, a huge fan of film and TV. I mean, I haven't done this in, recently because I've been pretty busy, but especially throughout quarantine and beyond i've developed the the habit of just going on to like hulu or amazon prime and finding really obscure movies that i've never heard of that were made sometime in the past you know 20 years and just without really looking at the synopsis just playing the movie and just watching it all the way through and i very rarely stop watching something once i've started it takes a lot for me to turn a movie off I have to really hate what I'm seeing to turn a movie off without wanting to see how it ends. Coherence was an interesting wreck. Yeah, that was yeah, one of those. I just it was a random click, late night click, and that in that context, that movie was just so almost better than choosing the, the movie because then you're it's literally the, the movie's winning you over. Yeah. All right, Mason. Very important question. The most important question okay. you have ever been asked. Oh wow. Would you be a pirate? Um, no. Why not? I, I wouldn't last a day. <laughs> I, I don't have the constitution to be a pirate. It's just, I wouldn't be able to do it. I like the fantasy. I like it conceptually. I, you know, I have narcolepsy and I have anxiety. I don't like being on boats if I can avoid it. It would be it would be too much for me. It is worth noting that we are about to embark on a pirate <laughs> side quest we, in D and D, which we, is very nice. Are. Maybe if all goes if well. all, if all goes, goes well. well, yeah. There's a lot of ifs there. <laughs> I don't know anything about the last session because I we, I wasn't there last night. Follow up question because this podcast isn't yeah. long enough. In the golden age of piracy, is there another job you would rather do? Oh, interesting. Because you know the history. <laughs> I haven't specialized in the golden age of piracy, but I like the idea of sort of being like a like a merchant in one of the little towns, stop off towns, like a little port city, like a spice trader. Yeah, spice, tra but like not the actual trader, but the merchant who sells the spices. Hey, sure, merchant. I yeah, would merchant yeah. works. You're the yeah, merchant of I'm, Venice. Yeah, I, get it. I don't. I don't think that this question was long enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Speaking of uh, not being able to commit to a phone background, do you have any tattoos? I don't, but. I want at least one tattoo. Wait, so you you don't feel comfortable 
picking a phone background because it's too big a decision, but you want tattoos. Unpack that. I don't have to look at my own tattoos. <laughs> no, um, I can't figure that one out. What are I, the tattoos that you want? So I've had this idea for a while that I would like to have a tattoo. I think visually I would want there to be like a, like a kind of outline drawing of some mythical beast from a medieval manuscript. Maybe mm. not even mythical, maybe just kind of like a weird looking like wolf or like lion. Or- yeah, just something that is clearly like from like the edges of an illuminated manuscript from, from the 12th century or something like right. that. And then you know where to look. I've had this, this idea that I don't know if I'm still committed to it, but this concept that I would get a tattoo that includes the word Nika written in Greek, mm. which means conquer. And specifically, the reasoning for that is, I guess, twofold. I spent uh, like a whole semester of college writing a paper on the Nika riots in Constantinople in 532. And I, and I just like spent so much time immersed in that world. And throughout that process of reading about this rebellion, I sort of imagined that word of resistance as something that, that I can use to remind me of that act of everyday sort of conquering my mental illness and 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 whatever it is that I'm struggling with to remind myself that I've made progress and I will continue to make progress. I love that. That's awesome. What was the first concert you ever attended? Um, Blink-182 and No Doubt. Hell nice. yeah, it was. Very nice. Jones Beach, New York. Jones Beach. That was where I went to see my first concert. Hey, what was that? Yes. Oh, okay. Uh, but I also did see um, Green Day at Jones Beach as my second concert. Nice. Mason, do you have a scar with a story? No, I don't have any good stories. I'll, I'll start with that. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us your bad story then. This scar on my hand I got from accidentally punching the bottom of Victoria Schaefer's pool. <laughs> it was not a significant injury whatsoever, but the scarring is kind of slightly gnarly if you look closely at it. Uh, what are three thoughts you have at this very moment? Oh, man. Come on. Very moment. Go. All right. Um, I feel bad for spending this long taking this much of your time. Uh, and you should. Yes. <laughs> I have to go host uh, trivia tonight, which I'm not super excited about, but, you know, it's it's a nice little side gig. It's and, on his um, It's, yeah. And um, I'm really excited to finish right now. I'm in the, the final stages of mixing what will be the first song that I put out for the upcoming release, Sleep Study. The song is called Origin Story. And um, I am nervous about getting the mix right. It should definitely be out by the time whenever this airs. So I'm excited for that. Well, that uh, sort of answers the next and final question. Mm. But to put a fine point on it, what are you looking forward to? I'm looking forward to looking forward to the next D&D session. That's what I'm looking forward Honestly, to. Honestly, yeah, same. <laughs> and yeah, I'm obviously looking forward to putting out, starting to put out this new music. Um, it'll be a nice relief to move into that stage and i'm just excited honestly truly excited for people to hear it and see what they think well mason souvenir this podcast is one that we've been talking about you asked me to recommend a book a movie and a show we cut that question we cut that question fuck you (laughs) i just want to add everyone should watch maniac and the leftovers that's fair that's fair (laughs) if you've made it this far dear listener then fucking listen to souvenir you this is one of our favorite artists one of our favorite people um, being friends with you is such an honor for us, so special. It's literally created worlds that have just been so incredible to live in. And 
we are we're just very grateful um for your friendship and for your music and we look forward to all the crazy collaborations that uh we do together and thank you for editing this this podcast <laughs> as well thank you so much for all those kind words it honestly makes me feel great and i appreciate you guys and your friendship so much and um i'm grateful that you agreed you agreed to have me on on your show usually we say we'll talk to you soon but uh we will literally just see you yeah. probably three or more or four more times this week um so we'll, we'll we will talk to you soon don't be We would like to thank Isotope for their support of Talking Lion. We would also like to give a big thank you to Mason Maggio for editing this episode. Thank you for listening and see you next time.